Welcome to another edition of the College Faith Podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. This is Stan Wallace, your host, and my guest today is Dr. Mary Poplin, a professor of education at the Claremont Graduate University for 40 years now. She's also author of numerous books on Christianity and higher education, including her most recent book, Is Reality Secular? Testing the Assumptions of Four Global Worldviews. Mary, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, it's good to see you again. Thanks for taking some time to visit with us. I recently read your book, Is Reality Secular? Testing Mm -hmm. the Assumptions of Four Global Worldviews, and I was spellbound. I think it's a great book that not only every college student should read, but every believer of any age. So I'd I'd like to start by asking you why you wrote the book. Um, I think think the origin, honestly, was, as you know, I was a late convert to Christianity, and I was already teaching in the university. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I was not teaching anything that would relate to Christianity, number one. And I also uh, began to suspect the kinds of things that I was teaching. So I had already in, you know, used all these worldviews, even pantheism in my classes. And so um, I was, it was a struggle for me to figure it out and to figure out what was being taught in the university, what was expected of university professors. And, and I just wanted to get the big picture. And, you know, I should ask first the question, define a worldview. A worldview um, is the lens that you see the world through. And it's generally believes itself to be neutral uh, and unbiased. And the secular worldview believes it's safer than a Christian worldview or any other religious worldview. And it's global. That is, it's a universal kind of thing. And uh, most people believe that it's more progressive to be secular than it is to be religious. So I started reading a lot. And then I kind of realized that there's really basically four worldviews. And I would say that the university is largely secular humanist. It'd be helpful to list those four views for the global listeners. Sure. Uh, Well, aside from the Judeo-Christian worldview, which does overlap a little bit with every other worldview, the worldview of materialism presumes that material is the only uh, real force in the universe. And Mm. if you understand materialism, there are very few true materialists. A lot of the most uh, strident atheists like Richard Dawkins is about as close as you can get to a, a true materialist. Mm. Uh, but materialists really believe that there's just material in the world and, and you're controlled by material and, and you can control material. The worldview that's the most dominant, I think, in the university and in the world, although it's slipping a little into the third, is secular humanism. It's just like, let's just be a good person. And, um, and secular humanism is, um, I would say, dominant in the world in general. But the third one, uh, pantheism, there are true pantheistic religions, but there's a kind of pantheism right now, especially in the United States, that's, um, that's driven by people like the owner of Google and all of these. Actually, the top tech guys mm-hmm. are often into pantheism, mm-hmm. but it's not true pantheism. It's whatever pantheism they made up. 
you know, so the Google guy takes three ice cold showers a day and does meditation and things like that. Um, so that's a, a sort of pseudo pantheistic religion, which a lot of people have. And then you have Judeo-Christian thought, which I think um, a lot of people really don't go into what's the, what are the principles behind, uh, behind Judeo-Christian thought. And they think, well, if I just have faith, but there are, you know, strong, strong principles there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's helpful. And a main thesis of your book is that all four of these worldviews make competing truth claims. Yes. So they can't all be right by definition. And that the goal of the good life and the goal of the university is to determine what is true or which worldview best maps to reality. Uh, you, you write on page 36. I, I like this, this, the way you put this, the most consequential issue is not who gets privileged or marginalized, but the question, what is true? Mm-hmm. This is the question to which Western culture in particular needs desperately to return. Mm-hmm. Reality simply is what it is. It functions with or without our agreement. Uh, but then you go on and, and, and write, the truth has become an idea rather than a description of reality. And it can be set aside, even though seeking truth is or once was the sole reason for the university. And not so many years ago, the same phrase might have come from my own lips as I indoctrinated my students into these same ideas. So let's talk a little bit more about your background. What led you to indoctrinate students into those other ideas, those other worldviews that you've come to find are are not true? Okay, well, I, um, you know, I thought of myself as very progressive. (laughs) Okay. And uh, and that's a problem (laughs) in and of itself. And therefore, what was the up and coming worldview? And I was living a secular humanist life, but, uh, but I t- was toying with pantheism. So, you know, that the, that the world was spiritual, but not religious. And right. the more I did that, in reality, the more uh, desperate my life got and the mm-hmm. more unusual the things I would try were. So I might try, you know, hanging out with people who called themselves witches or um, going to things like seances or something. And then, okay, so I had a dream. This was the beginning of my understanding that what I was was wrong and what I needed to be with Christ. Okay, so I had a dream that I was in a long line of people. This is the only dream I've ever had where I'm, I remember every single detail. Oh. And uh, and I was in a long line of people. We were all dressed in gray robes. We were suspended like in a night, scary looking sky, but there was no plane that we were walking on, but we were obviously not on different planes. We were together. There was a line and we were going uh, gradually. I didn't know where, and I'd look and I couldn't see the front. And I couldn't see the back. It was just a line that kept going and going and going. And suddenly I realized we were going to pass by something on the right. And this is the only time I've ever had a dream in color. And the only color was in this particular picture. Mm -hmm. So on the right, I looked and I saw the disciples sitting at the Last Supper. It was pretty clear because it was just like every picture you ever see of the disciples, (laughs) which is, of course, not the way they sat, but they're all sitting there facing you, right? Right. And they were. And they were moving and around and talking, and they were in color. They were, uh, they were real life looking. 
And so I, I began to look and suddenly I realized that actually Jesus was not at the table with them. This was the only discrepancy from those pictures we see. And I looked up ahead and we were all going to pass by Jesus. And when I got to Jesus, I looked in his eyes. I knew exactly who he was. I looked in his eyes. And then when I saw him, I saw the filth inside myself. Wow. And it was devastating. It was so bad that I couldn't look at him anymore. I mean, here's Mm -hmm. this pure Jesus and here's me. Yeah. And, um, And I started to weep and I fell at his feet. I just fell down. And in the dream, and this is the end of the dream, he leans over and puts his hands on my shoulder like this. And as soon as he touched me, I felt perfect peace. And then I woke up. And suddenly I knew that this was the truth. There was a truth that it it could be attained, but it could only be attained through knowing Jesus. And so once that happened to me, then I knew I had to understand what I already believed. And, um, and I had to understand what Jesus was like and what, what was it to be a Christian. And because I've always worked in the education of the poor, my research is in that area. I read, I saw a movie of Mother Teresa and um, at a monastery where I was, you know, I went everywhere. I went to monasteries. <laughs> I went to Protestant places. I went to Pentecostal places. And I just started soaking up what people believed, right? And I was at this retreat at this monastery, and they showed this movie of Mother Teresa. And um, and I just, I thought, you know, if I'm going to know what Christianity is like for, for working with the poor, I should go there and volunteer. Mm. And I did for um, two months in 1996. It was about a year and a half before she passed away, actually. I wow. barely made it. And, um, and then when I came back, I remember going into my office to get ready for class and to pick up the materials that I'd always picked up, right, for this particular class. And I started to weep because I realized that I had seen the truth, but I wasn't teaching it. And I didn't know how to how to take what I had learned from Mother Teresa and all the people who had helped me become a Christian, not just her, uh, into my work. And it, it had happened. And so um, I just kind of fell apart. <laughs> and that was a several month struggle. And uh, I didn't know what was really wrong until about two months later when I was at a, actually an education conference and they had asked me just to speak about my time at Mother Teresa's and a woman in the back asked me a question and I, I fell apart because I knew that the answer was that I wasn't teaching like that. I wasn't integrating Christian thought. And so then I started to study and then I thought, you know, I I began to see that all of us have that problem. I mean, I still have that problem, right? Right. So, um, so I, you you know, you have to consciously think, is this, is this Christian Mm -hmm. or, I mean, would this fit or does it not fit? Mm -hmm. Either what Jesus said is true or it's not true. Right. And if it's true, there's, there's a lot left out of secular education. 
And nowadays, secular education just goes more and more radical. And that's why I think I said earlier, it wasn't bad for one of your children not to want to go to college right now. (laughs) It might be a good idea. (laughs) Well, that's a pretty amazing statement for someone who's spent their entire career in higher education. Yeah, 40 years. Well, you do write uh, in the book on page 19, you say, in retrospect, by the time I was a fully tenured professor, I could not reliably think myself out of a paper bag. Perhaps worse, few people apparently noticed. <laughs> and I think most will find that shocking. We think of professors as most able to think clearly. So why, why were you not able to do so? Because I had learned all of the, all of the secular answers to everything. And so I had never considered... Um, Maybe I could give you an example of something I'm trying to work on right now. Like, there's a lot going on in the culture that's about justice, right? Mm -hmm. You know, is this Mm -hmm. just? And social justice is the word that we use, which is not, of course, found in the Bible. So I started looking up justice in the Bible. It's primarily mentioned in the Old Testament. And the interesting thing is that it's all almost always used with the word righteousness. Because that is the definition. So the definition of the Hebrew word zadik is justice and righteousness. Okay, so you can't have justice without righteousness. And you can't have righteousness without justice. So in the discussions of all the new, the new things about um, justice, maybe it's the uh, Black Lives Matter or any of those things, um, or even the things that we've always thought of ourselves, you know, before that, the piece that's missing is the righteousness piece usually. So we have this idea of justice almost as a mathematical formula, (laughs) as opposed to justice and righteousness are the same. And if you have, if you don't have one, you don't have the other, right? I mean, you can't, you can't have justice without both of them. If you really look at the uh, the Old Testament, that's what teaches us. Okay. Um, and so there are ways to look at things in the Bible and to understand why they're different than what we're doing. You know, I'm kind of reading the Bible through again this year, and I'm I'm only into Leviticus, which is all the rules. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but it's very interesting because there's a lot of there's a lot of things in there we should remember. Mm. Well, and it's just a great example of trying to think Christianly and integrate all truth, what we know from looking around the world, seeing uh, things that everybody observes, and then bringing biblical truth into that to help us sharpen and and focus more on what actually is the truth of the matter. Exactly. I appreciate you working on that issue and trying to, to bring your knowledge and biblical truth together in that conversation. It's tough, isn't it? It is tough. Because we live in a world that's completely secular. Exactly, exactly. And a lot of Christians shy away from it. Yeah. Or uh, or just don't just don't have the, the tools and gifts and experience that you have to do it. So I appreciate your service and that way to the kingdom. Well, uh, that was the way I was too, you know, but it started bothering me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe it was Mother Teresa that did it. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, and I'll, I'll plug your other book. 
uh, where you tell the story in more detail of both your coming to faith and then starting to think about how that influences your future and uh, your your teaching, your scholarship, and even your role in the university more broadly. So that book is Finding Calcutta, and uh, I think it's a fabulous read, just a very personal, very honest uh, story you you tell. And then it's got some great appendices, too, about the future of higher education and how as Christians we can think about that. So I think the readers ought to pick that up, too, after they read this book. <laughs> so so let me ask you uh, about this, uh, and this ties into what you were just saying. You do note in the book why it's so important to understand both our worldview and others' worldviews. Uh, for instance, you write on page 16, quote, understanding the relatively straightforward assumptions of the four major worldviews around the globe makes us less susceptible to those strong ideologies, left and right, of the media, education, and government, of which we are often not consciously aware. Can, can you say a little more about examples you have from your own life? First of all, not being aware of all those worldviews and how that led you certain directions. And then once you became aware of these worldviews and started to be more discerning, you were able to, to make right decisions. <laughs> oh, that's a tough question. Um, well, first, I would say that the only worldview that I was not familiar with really was the Christian worldview. Hmm. Uh, I wasn't terribly familiar with the materialist worldview. I kind of knew it existed. I mean, the idea yeah. that everything that you think and everything that happens to you is ultimately discernible by some kind of material cause. Yeah. Uh, I think the biggest struggle I had was discerning secular humanism from Christian thought, because there's this idea in the secular world that a secular worldview is more unbiased than a Christian worldview, for mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. It's neutral, therefore it's true, and therefore it's safer, therefore it's more global, therefore it's more progressive. So all those things uh, are kind of in the back of our mind, whether we know it or not. And what that has led to, you know, the early universities were all Christian. I mean, Christianity created the university, just like it created the hospital. But when we got to around 1900, people wanted, Christian, and I'm talking about Christian scholars, wanted a university that was more global, Right. And so they believed that what they needed to do was to get rid of specific Christianity. As long as they were looking for the truth, it would still be Christian, right? Okay. But that didn't happen. And the further we've gone into the secular university, the further we get from Christianity. And it isn't more progressive. I mean, right now, the university's in a state of disarray in a lot of ways, especially in terms of the content that's being taught. So you may have one professor who is Christian, who, who comes out of one worldview, but you might have another uh, professor who's a, a strict pantheist or a strict atheist or a strict materialist. And their vision is not, they're not really trying to, they believe that the truth is what they know. So then you have all these truths out there and as a student, you're left trying to discern what is true, right, for yourself. Mm -hmm. I remember that that really wasn't my goal as a student either. It was my goal was to kind of have fun and grow up and 
entered the adult world. And, and so I was trying everything. And, um, and that was pretty deadly. I'm surprised I actually lived through it. Hmm. Thanks be to God, I did. By God's grace. Yeah, right. Well, and so that that ties into this quote you have here. It sounds like your observation is that many professors, most professors don't understand the assumptions of all four major worldviews. And Mm -hmm. so assume their worldview must be true and proceed accordingly to often promote views that that aren't always as strongly supported by the evidence by reality right. as uh, as they might think that's is the case right right and that's that's another thing i mean i started looking at uh research on christianity for example okay the people who do best and the people whose children do the best are people who live by the principles that are embedded in christianity we will return to the show in just a moment But first, a word from our sponsor. If you are like most of our listeners, you are concerned about the ideas being promoted in our universities today. We too often hear about what is false and even harmful being promoted as true. Christian professors are called to stand up for what is true, good, and just, and teach their students to do the same. Help equip Christian professors to do so at www.global-scholars.org. Please also check out the other podcast Stan and Dr. J.P. Moreland do together, Thinking Christianly. Whereas this college faith podcast focuses more on the practical questions of thriving during the college years, the Thinking Christianly podcast is all about the ideas that shape the university, students, our broader culture, and the world. Visit thinkingchristianly.org or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now back to college faith. I wonder if you can give an example from your own research of how your prior worldview influenced how you saw any given issue in in your field. And then once you came to faith and understood the biblical worldview, how that changed your view of that issue in your field and you started to 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 teach and write in a different vein on those issues. Okay, so like I said, uh, one of my concerns has always been um, the education of the poor. I mean, you can look at any statistic in any city and you will find that the uh, achievement scores okay. of kids in poor schools is abominable, right? Mm-hmm. And, sure. and yeah. unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I thought, okay, my original thought was you just need to um, be more compassionate, right, with these, um, these youngsters who are coming from from poverty, just be more compassionate, build a school that's, that's compassionate and has nice teachers and everything else. Well, um, when I started to study the teachers who had the best scores in the poorest schools, they were tough. (laughs) These were, Mm. these were teachers who were very strict and yet they were also loving. Okay. So I had had, I had the loving thing in my mind, right? But they were more than that. And what was the grounding of that loving thing? Did that come specifically out of your worldview? It came out of secular humanism. Just be nice, you know, be nice, you know, live with each other, uh, be, be encouraging and all that. Well, you can be encouraging, but if I'm, if I'm a little kid in your class, I don't know how to read. You really need to 
teach me to read. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, okay. and it and it might not be comfortable. It might not be fun for me at first, right? It might take some real serious work. Right. And that's where I think the the secular humanism thing fell fell down for me. So the biblical worldview doesn't suggest that everything is going to be, you know, it's not nice. I mean, some of the reasons people don't go to Christianity is they look at the Old Testament or they look at some of the things Jesus said, and they were tough things. They were, but they're real, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but they're real. And so that was, that was kind of my first awakening. I mean, I remember going into the school, I knew the scores, right? So I'm a researcher uh, I had asked this school district, could I go through the scores of these teachers in the in the poor schools? And they let me do it. And so I had the name of three teachers in this particular elementary school in South uh, Los Angeles, very, very poor area. And I walked into this teacher's classroom and she is tough. She's tough. She's tough. And yet every once in a while, a little glimmer of humor would come out or you'd see her. One of the things these teachers never do is sit down at their desk. So they constantly walk between the rows. So they're constantly monitoring what children are doing when they're doing their writing and their work. And so she stopped and she would help a particular child that she would see was making a mistake. Right. Mm -hmm. So she was very diligent in that way. And yet sometimes she would just say something to a child like, are you feeling okay today? You look like you just might be sleepy, right? So there was always this personal thing. And then I began to notice that when the kids would come into her class or out of her class, this was a junior high science class, she spoke to them individually. So there was this something more than strictness. She wasn't just strict, but she was very strict. (laughs) I remember walking back to the car with a research assistant, one of my graduate students, and And I said, wow, she is really strict. I was not ready for the strict part. I I might have expected that she would be nice to the kids, but I was not ready for the strict part where she would say, you know, you have three seconds to do what I just told you to do. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Something like that. So that's a great example of uh, two contrasting worldviews and how they they see those issues. And I, I, I suspect that created... No small amount of dissonance for you in a secular humanist framework. <laughs> but then I did notice Jesus was that way mm-hmm. immediately, right? I mean, that was mm-hmm. Jesus. He wasn't always a really just nice, chummy guy. <laughs> mm. And so then I'm trying to put the timeline together. That was before this research in the school was before you came to faith, right? No, this research in the school was afterwards. So okay. this research was probably in started in the year 2000. So it was four years later. Okay. You know, I still didn't know. I didn't know these kind of things. And I see. So I was still, you know, learning. I, you know, we're, I'm still learning. But. Sure, sure, sure. So you, you come to faith in Christ, but you are still in that process that we're all in of understanding all the implications and how specifically it related to the issues in your discipline and as a Christian scholar, how you should think differently about things. Right, right. Got it. Well, I realized that when I saw the reality of a great teacher, a junior high science teacher, that was the first one I really noticed and really went to see. Uh, when I saw that reality, 
and you could see the children's scores, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is like, this has data on it. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> and here's this woman <laughs> and she is both strict and loving. Yeah. She knows her subject. She's very good at presenting it and she presents it little by little by little. Mm-hmm. And she makes, she does double checks. Did you get it? Did you get it? Did you get it? And she walks around the rooms to make sure everybody gets it. Mm. So it's hard to say that it was just strict. She was strict and she was loving. Mm-hmm. Oh. Great. Such a great example of contrast between the secular humanist view of education and the, the biblical worldview and, and, and how by knowing the difference, you're not susceptible to uh, the strong ideologies you know you write about in the book. Because you realize there's another side of the story, as Proverbs says, one side sounds right till someone else comes along and argues the other point of view, <laughs> right? Exactly, right. And uh, and I think that's really helpful for students, but students uh, often are in the same place you were before you realize this diversity of worldviews and how it so strongly predisposes you to believe certain things are true and other things are false. Mm -hmm. So what advice might you have for students who are believers? Mm -hmm. They're in the university and they don't have this understanding of the assumptions of the four major worldviews. Mm -hmm. Uh, Short of reading your book, which I want them to do, but can you give (laughs) them a, a quick a quick uh, detour to the, the 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 goal of really being able to understand the different ideas their professors are presenting that might not be or often are not from a biblical worldview, and how, how do they how do they think about and engage those things? I think when they're studying, like for a test or studying when we're um, reading, you have to stop every once in a while and say, "Is this the whole story?" Because mm. generally, something that's secular has part of the truth in it. I mean, mm-hmm. almost always does, right. except when you mm-hmm. get into really postmodernism. And then, it, it, you know, there are philosophers who kind of encourage you to think of anything but the truth part. <laughs> but, <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but to think of, okay, so this is true. Is there another story here? Is there a backstory to this? Is there is there something behind this? You know, you see it in the, the arguments over um, evolution, for example how we got here, you have to really then look and say, is this the whole thing? And then you get, then you get into other stories. It does have something to do with, obviously it's largely scientific, but it does have something to do with God's plan. Mm -hmm. And it's laid out in the first book of Genesis, right? I mean, the whole thing is right there. I think that sometimes the secular answers are wrong but sometimes they're on, they're often only partial, right? There's something else there as well. And I think that's the, that's the thing to look for. What does this mean? Or what's, what's also going on here that's not uh, admitted? Mm-hmm. Well, and I think your chapters in the book uh, that overview these specific worldviews are really helpful to students who are trying to identify those things. And I've noticed that different areas in the university tend toward different worldviews. Absolutely. So uh, so can you say a little bit about that? And it, let's say a student is in the, the hard sciences. Mm-hmm. What chapters of the book would be really helpful to address the worldviews they're going to encounter in general? Okay, the section, which has uh, several chapters in it, but it's on materialism. 
Mm -hmm. So science really deals with materialism. It deals with what's uh, in front of you that you can actually study, right? Mm -hmm. And um, the interesting thing about this is while the science of it is pretty much directly material, the number one group in the university that actually are also believers are scientists. Mm -hmm. There are more scientists who believe percentage-wise, who believe in God than there are secular humanists, for example. The social sciences really come out of uh, secular humanism, as do largely the humanities. And right now, there's kind of a race. It's undefined, but there's kind of a race to see how weird you can get. How strange can the theory be? So you've mentioned a little bit in the sciences and the ch- the whole section you've got there on material naturalism would be great. Right. Uh, the main thing that's contested in the sciences, I should say, is how sh- humans got here. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the big thing. Sure. In secular humanism, it's really about being humanistic, which mm-hmm. at least for me and I think for a lot of people, uh, humanism just means, oh, you got to be nice. Right. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just You've got to be nice. You've got to uh, listen to everybody's worldview, take all that in because it could all be true. Stephen Smith does the best job of uh, refuting this. He's a a law professor at the University of San Diego. And um, he talks about you can't have it both ways. I mean, it doesn't actually work that way. Is there a book by Stephen Smith you'd recommend? Pretty much any of his books. The good thing about Stephen Smith's books is that they're readable. Okay. Yeah. They're not so academic. He's a very good writer. Okay. Great. Great. So we talked about the sciences. You've touched on the others, but is, is there something specifically that students in the humanities need to understand in terms of worldviews they might confront and be able to then critique? You know, the humanities have a penchant these days for, for being as odd or as countercultural as possible. And that I think is, is troubling. I mean, the only people who can afford to be countercultural are in the university. (laughs) 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 So (laughs) there is a penchant for making things look odd. Mm. And um, and that's a a struggle, I think, for the humanities. Yeah. And they might draw on any of these other worldviews, right? Right. I think most people have a little bit of everything, right? Yeah, sure. And I think that'd be true for the social sciences as well. Right. 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 And Christianity, I mean, there's some Christian principles in there in all of those, right? Exactly. Right. And that's what's so hard about it, because you think, well, this is true. Maybe the whole set of ideas are true without being discerning. Right, right, right. Yeah. How about students in the applied sciences? Anything in particular they're going to run into that's unique or a chapter in the book you might want to point them to? Um, I think the materialist section for sure. Um, Mm. But the applied sciences underrate the degree that you have human potential to overcome things. Mm. They might overrate the sort of negative aspects and not really look at the ability to overcome something. Well, and the, the the broader point that all of this ties into is, as you, you say in the book, that everyone, including every professor, has a faith commitment mm-hmm. to one of these worldviews. That's true. Yeah. Related to this, in the book, you say, the Judeo-Christian worldview encourages more freedom, supports more diversity, and is safer and healthier 
than secular or other religious worldviews. And I think this is some examples you've given of, of where that the Christian worldview supports a view that might be safer or healthier. Tell me a bit more about how you got to that conclusion and how you've seen that challenged by people. I'm sure you've had quite a few people either from writing that in the book or saying that in public uh, discussions to say, no, that's, that's so wrong. The Judeo-Christian worldview shuts down conversation, limits freedom, is worse for everybody, uh, not, not healthier. So push back on that pushback. Okay. Today, it would usually be in the area of morality, probably. What you would see with the Judeo-Christian answer to something, well, you could just take um, abortion, right? I mean, abortion is, a, is an easy thing to do, right? It's something easy. A lot of people choose it. But is it true? Is it good for you? I mean, all you have to do is to look at the health statistics of people who've had abortions, right? And you can see that there's a result that isn't considered when you're considering that, right? Mm, there are things okay. that, that are going to hang on, including health issues. And if you look at a at it broadly through like a Christian lens, then you see the whole story. Otherwise, you just see the little narrow piece that you're given. Mm. I would say that a Christian has to look deeper. You got to look deeper and you got to look at all the things that are attached to that issue, whatever that issue is. You have to use science to to figure things out. And there's nothing in in Judeo-Christian thought that's against science. You know, Mary, I, I sit here thinking, and I know my listeners are thinking that, boy, you're you're just exactly the kind of professor we all we all want. And, <laughs> and so there's two questions that are going through, I'm sure the listeners' mind minds. Uh one, how do we find professors like you? And uh conversely, how do we avoid professors like you used to be who are trying to indoctrinate <laughs> their students into deeply anti-Christian worldviews? <laughs> Help us out. Give us some guidance. <laughs> so with the ones that you know are kind of off the mark, uh, study it and see see what they really believe and think through what the alternative beliefs are to what this person is professing, right? I like using that word because professors do profess. Yeah, they do. That's, that's helpful. <laughs> they do. You know, I had students after I became a Christian who had had me when I wasn't a Christian. And I can't tell you the number of them who said, you know, the whole time I was in your class, I was praying for you. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, that's beautiful, isn't it? it I, sure and I is. think if you know that someone's, that one of your professors is off, none of us are perfect, that's for sure, that praying for them is a really wonderful uh, strategy. Mm. And it mm. also keeps your mind on, on what might be wrong or what might be missing. You know, it's not always that something in a field is wrong. It's just that it's not the whole story. Mm. It's just not the whole story. So the abortion example is a good example, really. It's medically understood. It, it's widely available, all those things. But then there's something behind that. There's something more there than just those uh, simple medical facts. Exactly. So in very practical ways, how do students who show up on campus freshman year want to be able to have professors like you to think about 
issues in a broader context where they really explore the not only other worldviews, but the biblical worldviews, understanding of issues in their field. How do they find professors like you to do that? Well, if they can't find professors, um, they can find books. There are books written by Christians in every field. That would be one thing. The other thing that I would suggest, and I I see, especially in the undergraduate days, this really uh, does help people stay Christian, and that is to join a group. Mm. Get in touch with another student group that's where you share the same kinds of things and you can talk about the issues. And Mm. you can have speakers come and talk to you. A Christian needs to be surrounded by other Christians. And it can't just be in church because in church, there's not very many people in your situation mm-hmm. unless you have a church group, right? For people who are in college, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, but find people who are in your situation who are also Christian. And that should be pretty easy on most campuses because most campuses have Christian groups. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of parents think if I just send my child to a Christian college, they'll get this Christian education. That's not necessarily true. Right. Unfortunately, it's really not. I mean, there are some that are much, much more than others, but, um, you know, there are, there are colleges that are not even listed as Christian that are more, that might be more suited for uh, kids. Mm-hmm. That's a good distinction to make. The main thing is that you are somehow connected to Christians who are academic or intellectually engaged or interested or people who are in the field that you want to be in mm-hmm. uh, and find those people who are Christian and, and mm-hmm. let them make a group. And there's probably older ones who would love to be your mentor. Mm-hmm. Great. Thanks. That's really practical uh, advice. I'm going to pull another quote out of the book and have you respond to it. I found it interesting. Okay. Uh, on page 34, you cite Acts 17:21 and write, Quote, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. That was the origin of the university. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah. And then you go on and you say this description is quite apt for today's universities, <laughs> it is. Uh, which fashion themselves as the ultimate marketplace of ideas and progenitors of all that is new. Paul found the city full of idols. And I, I've seen the term marketplace of ideas used by believers and others as a, as a positive feature of the university, a place where all ideas get a fair hearing. They're all mm-hmm. on display, but in this context, you're seeing it as part of the problem and, and, and say a little more about that and maybe how that is true. Maybe more so of today's universities in the, than even in the past. Yeah. Okay. So the big problem is not that they have these other, uh, these sec, let's say the secular ideas, in the university, the problem is they don't have it with the Christian ideas, right? That, that Christianity is the only group that's left out. So even pantheistic religions will be raised in classes like, you know, your English classes or whatever. But it's just, it's what's left out that's the problem. And so, you know, people who talk about not integrating Christianity into uh, into the the work, the intellectual work of the university, number one, don't know that Christianity has intellectual things to say. Mm-hmm. And number two, they're unaware that any secular, totally secular class is coming from, from a set of assumptions mm-hmm. that are not necessarily widely held. Again, faith commitments. Right. Faith commitments. Mm-hmm. 
And today with postmodernism running wild and more than that, sort of more radical than postmodernism, mm-hmm. they, aren't, I didn't, they aren't saying to you when you come to class, hey, I'm a postmodernist or I am a Foucaultian. I love Michel Foucault. So I'm going to teach you philosophy through Michel Foucault's eyes, right? They don't tell you that, but that's what they're doing, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I think you should just always be aware. And the other thing is there's a lot going on about whether or not people need the university. And if they do, when do they need to go to it and why and for what purpose? So mm-hmm. I know that right now, a lot fewer men are going to the university than women. And I don't know that that's a bad thing. I really think, honestly, that it might be a good idea. You know, in Israel, you cannot go to the university straight from high school. Oh, really? You have to have two years of service to your country. Hmm. So you might be in the military. You might be assigned to be a teacher. You might be assigned to be a nurse uh, or be a doctor's assistant or something. Uh, But you cannot enter the university until you've had two years of work. And I think that would not be a bad idea because all you've ever done is be a student. and Now you're being a student again. And it's before you get enough experience in the world. And I think that some of the people who are not going to the university right now know that. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it gives students or young adults a chance to have broader experience and mm-hmm. exposure to other worldviews, to your point, and to realize that there are different answers to these big questions. Right. Uh, and, and they realize, back to the point, that there is a marketplace of ideas out here. There's a lot of different ideas, including the the biblical worldview that ought to be thought about. And in fact, when thought about answers the questions I'm asking better. Right. But sometimes it just takes that that time and maybe even like to your point, that separation from the academic milieu for a for a period to get that broader perspective. Right. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, finally, you want write one more thing I really found <laughs> oh. interesting. Well, I, I, everything I found interesting, but I want to pull one more quote out. Uh, near the end of the book, on page 258, you write, quote, the concept of unity and diversity embedded in the word university holds that there is an ultimate reality undergirding and connecting knowledge across the diverse academic disciplines, a unity evident, perfect, and effectual in the trinity. So you tied the notion of Trinity to the concept of the university, which is the deepest level of integrative thinking that I've ever seen between biblical thought and understanding the the university context. But one of the theses that comes out, and you mentioned this in, in earlier in our conversation, is that this unity is disintegrating. And uh, can you say a little more about how you've seen the disintegration and what might be done about it? The disintegration, am I talking about the disintegration of the university? Yes, yes. So it's no longer a university. And that concept of unity isn't anymore what defines the university. Right, right. Well, the fields are very, very separate. Uh, Even inside the sciences, they're very separate. So Mm -hmm. someone who goes into the sciences is going to either go into the biological sciences or the material sciences. And then inside each of those, you've got divisions, so we're educating people at a, at a level like that rather than to see the whole picture. Now, the origin of the university, the first two years, was everybody's together, right? The scientists are in the same classes. 
as the social sciences and so forth. And I think that's disintegrated some, but it really needs to be integrated. And I think that the humanities actually held that together. So the class that we took together, we were reading literature together, but we were reading the same books and we were reading philosophy. We'd read the same philosophers. So we had a picture of the whole, but we were all doing it together. And I think that was very helpful because it does give you the the reality that where you're going is not the only is not the only place there is to go. When the university was Christian, the first year or so was really understanding the Bible in terms of what's it saying intellectually here and where do I need to go? So that's gone away. So the kind of things now that people read that are common are not, they're not the Bible. They might be, you know, they're whatever that professor chose to, to be read. And, um, you know, the person who wrote the best book about this was Julie Rubin, who wrote a book called The Making of the Modern University. And even though she wrote it in the late 80s, I think, it's a very good book in terms of the history of the university and how it kind of became more disintegrated. She's at Harvard, and I believe that she's Jewish. But she talks about how the loss of that religious foundation was detrimental to all the fields and, of course, to the people. So I think that looking back on the reason the university was called the university and the reason it was developed that way is because there are things that we need to know in common, that we need to all know. All people who want to be highly educated need to have some place where they come together, where the the person who's going to stand over the microscope and the person who's going to be in the classroom and the person who's going to build rockets need to be together somewhere. Right. Well, and it assumes all truth is God's truth. Right. And so every discipline has truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not just that this the sciences know what the truth is and the others have opinions they're talking about. No, all <laughs> disciplines have truth. And, in, and and equally importantly, each discipline needs the truth the other disciplines have. Exactly. So that they can only do what they are doing by being a part of the broader whole. Exactly. And that all makes sense. It's part of the Christian worldview. Right. But uh, but unfortunately, as you're pointing out, is is on the wane. Yeah. So what can be done? What can be done about that? Is there a solution? There are some universities you could look at that are still using a model like that, like the Aquinas universities, like Hillsdale Colleges. St. John's has got the great books program, Biola. Right, right. So there are universities that's, that still promote those kinds of things, but uh, they're becoming fewer <laughs> further between. Um, I think right now, most people think that I go to the university, get a job. So when I go to the university, I take courses that are in that area. Um, Instead of I go to the university to become a a better, better educated person to know the world, not just my job. (laughs) Right. And it seems to me the furthest step toward disintegration is knowledge moving from even truth in my discipline to actually truth being weaponized and used to advance political agendas oh, yeah. or socio-political agendas. And you write about, about uh, critical theory. Right. That's a increasingly divisive and important topic in our broader culture. Yeah, I mean, critical, I, I knew critical theory was coming for a long, it's been coming for a long time. Uh, and it is very divisive. Yeah. It just encourages division among people. 
non-integration of things. I mean, what you really go to university for is to come together. Mm-hmm. Very different, uh, diverse minds and thoughts and ideas come together. Well, and so it is It is a great case study, maybe the current case study of all the things you've written this book to help to address. Yeah. Yeah. So I would like to have you back on and talk about that. Okay. That'd, well, that'd be I, better get, I better get writing <laughs> on, on it, thinking about it. <laughs> that's great thanks for giving me more work sam <laughs> that's right that's right you need something to do as you retire I I <laughs> well mary as, as we draw to a close is there anything else you want to make sure we touch on no i think that's it i i just uh i thank you for having me on and uh it's good to see you even if it's on the screen and uh you too i'm pretty accessible like you know people can email me i'm not a facebook person so you're not going to find my Facebook on there, but I'm happy to answer an email question. <laughs> so if you'd like to have people contact you, share whatever address you'd like for them to use. Oh, okay. It's just mary.poplin at cgu.edu. And even though I'm retired, I'll still be still have the same email and uh, still be a, an emeritus professor there. So Great. Great, which is a, Thanks, a a title of honor, which you have well <laughs> uh, earned and deserve. So, <laughs> hey, last question. Uh, besides reading the book, which again I highly recommend, where can listeners go to learn more about some of these issues? I think that uh, let's see. You know, I really should put together kind of a little bibliography of the things that really helped me. Um, I do think the the Stephen Smith work, any of his work. Mm-hmm. Uh, will be good. I think, um, oh gosh, there's so many I'm going to regret I didn't say. Mm-hmm. Um, James Sire started writing about worldviews years ago, and he he oh. helped me out. Um, the Universe Next Door. The Universe Next Door. That's right. Yeah. Ex- excellent. I actually read that with my son in high school to prepare him for going to college, and he said, in retrospect, it was probably the best book he read in the uh, high school years to get ready. Yeah, that's a really good one. It really is. You know, you start with something and then you go to the next author. And mm-hmm. Well, thanks again for taking some time and having this conversation and uh, all the the work you've done, both <laughs> heart, hands, and mind to oh. be Christ in the university Thank for so many years. You too, Stan. Thank you. That brings us to the end of this edition of the College Faith Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this conversation at the intersection of Christian conviction and higher education. Be sure to check out today's show notes at collegefaith.net slash podcasts, where you can find more information and links to the resources we discussed. If you found this podcast helpful, please help spread the word by liking my College Faith Facebook page at facebook.com slash college faith and pass this show on to others who may enjoy hearing our conversation. Please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars, to help equip Christian professors to be salt and light for Christ on their campuses. Until next time, this is Stan Wallace encouraging you to love the Lord your God with both heart and mind during the university years and beyond.